Okay, that scripture reading, Philippians 1, first of all, verse 18 through to 26, and then chapter 3, verse 12 to 21. Philippians 1, verse 18. Paul has been talking about some people who preach Christ from envy and strife, some from goodwill, and then he says in verse 18, the word of the Lord, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. The Word of God. And 3 verse 12 talked about the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, and he says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting these things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this in mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind." Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have also, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He's able even to subdue all things to Himself. And then we turn to Revelation 21. Where we read the first five verses. (coughs) Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea, then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is the word of the Lord. Then we turn to our confessional reading, Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Page 536 of the Book of Praise. <coughs> the Confession of the Church. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. So far, our confession. <coughs> Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it happens. One moment a loved one is with us, part of a network of affection and friendship, a maker of plans, a dreamer of dreams. He or she is there for us to enjoy and to share. But then one day it happens, sometimes expected, sometimes unexpected. Death claims him or her, and there's no means by which they can be recovered. Death is final because it brings to an end all earthly plans and the fulfillment of all earthly hopes. Whatever was unfinished at death remains forever unfinished. Death is also certain. Someone pointed out that during World War II, the war doesn't really increase death. Death is total for every generation. War, unfortunately, means that people who are going to die, die earlier than they should. As someone put it, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. The leading cause of death is life. Those who live will die. Baptism form says life is but a constant death. And yet it's striking. Maybe it struck you. Did you notice that in this Lord's Day that deals with this very matter, the word death is not even mentioned? Why not? Maybe because for the authors of our catechism, those who believe in Jesus Christ are so united with Him that death poses no real threat. Lord's Day 16 already said, Our death puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. 
This, it seems, is what Lord's Day 22 is really about, this entrance into eternal life, how it happens, what it means. Lord's Day 22 is not really about death, it's about life, how our lives continue despite that enemy called death. How our lives are so united with Jesus Christ that we who have died with Him do truly live with Him. For what is life? Remember that question from Catechism? Is life simply that blood flows? Is life simply that your brain still works? Or is this life, as our Lord Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God? That we have fellowship with God, as our confession says. Paul once said to the Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why is death an enemy? Because it destroys life in contrast to God, the creator and author of life. And because God's desire is to give us not death, but life. This, then, is the blessedness of Lord's Day 22. It moves us on to a world where there will be no more death, only life, perfect, wondrous life in the arms of our Savior through the love of God. Because of He who lives, our Lord Jesus Christ. God's Word comes to into this theme. In Jesus Christ, we know the life that never ends. We'll talk about the continuation of our lives after death, at our death the glorification of our lives in the resurrection and the blessedness of our lives into eternity. The continuation of our lives at our death, glorification of our lives in the resurrection, the blessedness of our lives into eternity. Brothers and sisters, the degree to which the catechism is <coughs> at pains to speak about life and the continuation of our lives is evident from what happens in answer 57. It has been called an intrusion, but it's a delightful intrusion. For the question reads, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? And then the catechism does not immediately focus on the resurrection. It does not go to the glorious time of Christ's return when the dead will rise, but it goes to the time when you and I will die. And it gives us this delightful expression, not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head. Here you see already the, the Lord's Day, this Lord's Day is about life. The first point it makes is that the believer's communion with Christ is not broken by death. Christ and those who belong to Jesus Christ are so united, so joined together, so indwelt by the Spirit, that when they die, their communion with Christ is not even interrupted. In fact, it's improved. It's intensified at the time of death. Many have doubted that. They, they have looked, for instance, at the scriptural phrase, fallen asleep. And they suggested it means that in the time between our death and the resurrection, there's this unconscious period in which we fall asleep. Back in the 60s, Reverend Telder in our circles defended this idea. It's like getting on a train. You fall asleep at the train, and before you know it, you're at the next station. Hey, what happened? You were asleep. But whenever our Lord Jesus or Paul uses that phrase, you've fallen asleep, 
The idea, the comparison is not between a state of consciousness and a state of unconsciousness. It's not that (laughs) before (coughs) death we are conscious, after death we are unconscious. Rather, behind this notion is the idea that death is only temporary. Sleep is usually followed by an awakening, is it not? We take this for granted. We, We put our kids to bed and we presume after so many hours, you can bet on it. They're going to be wake up, and they're going to be full of life. I remember as a boy, my father loved to go for that afternoon Sunday nap. He would lay down and rest, and we'd try to be quiet around him. But we never doubted he was going to wake up. Time for church. We'd wake up. That's the nature of sleep. You fall asleep for a while, and it's a blessed thing. Already in Daniel 12, verse 2, we read, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Similarly, our Lord Jesus had resurrection in mind when He said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Get the the imagery? He's fallen asleep. He's going to wake up. I'll wake him up. It's then, because a human corpse lies in the grave still, as it were, resting and awaiting resurrection, that it's appropriate to call death sleep, and a graveyard a cemetery, a sleeping place. That's why it's so foolish to deduce soul sleep, because the analogy has more to do with bodies than sleep, with bodies that sleep rather than souls that sleep. The analogy is about the fact that that now they are horizontal But there's a day coming when they will be vertical. You go to the funeral home, you see this person horizontal. But there's a day coming, he will be vertical again. Calvin points out in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul speaks about those who have fallen asleep, he says, it doesn't refer to soul sleep. Says Calvin, it refers not to the soul, but to the body. For the dead body lies in the tomb as on a couch until God raises up the man. Those therefore who act, those therefore act a foolish part, who infer from this that souls sleep. And so it is for the same Paul who has that occasion to see people who have died and who look like they are physically asleep is very emphatic. These people are very conscious. Their communion with Christ is not broken. It is intensified. The believer's passage to heaven is a direct route. The moment we take our last breath on earth, we take our first breath in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Want to see that? Think of 2 Corinthians 5. When the Apostle Paul describes this reality by comparing our present existence, which he calls to, which he calls being at home in the body, being at home in the body, to being away from the Lord. Conversely, he speaks of our time after death as a being away from the body and as being at home with the Lord. When our present bodies are dissolved, We will not be deprived of that communion with the Lord which we already enjoy in this life. Rather, joy of joys, we will enter into the new and more intimate communion in the Lord's presence. Similarly, when we read from Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul is able to speak of his death as a gain. We so often speak of it as a loss. So sorry for your loss. 
And it is a loss for the presence of others whom we have known and loved is no longer there. It's, it's a loss for us. But Paul says there's also a sense in which it's gain, gain for the believer. Why? <coughs> Precisely because it will bring him and any believer into an even greater communion with Christ, his heavenly head. Writing from prison, Paul recognizes he may well be put to death for the sake of the gospel, but he's not afraid because death would be better than life. There's no downside here. There's nothing lost. It's all better. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And yet, recognizing that the Lord may well have work for him to do on behalf of the Philippians and others, he doesn't look down on this life and despise it, for he says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better far by far but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What do you think? If death meant sleep, if for Paul death in the first century meant sleeping for decades and centuries until Jesus comes back, would this really be a contest? Would this be a question for him? Then, of course, he would rather stay and preach for as many years as he can. For who does anything beneficial while they're asleep. But precisely because death means richer communion with Christ, therefore Paul is torn. He says, between departing and being with Christ, which is better for himself, and remaining in the body, which is better for them. Where did Paul get this from? It would seem this is something the Lord Jesus, the disciples learned from our Lord Jesus. <coughs> Who does not recall here the criminal hanging on the cross beside our Lord Jesus? And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, later, Jesus, when you get to where you're going, don't forget me. The criminal is like Joseph who in prison interprets the cupbearer's dream and then says, remember me when you get out of here. Remember that I'm still here. Mention me to Pharaoh. But what does our Lord Jesus say? He says to this man, not tomorrow, not later. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. You can think, too, of the parables. Many will be quick to point out that you have to be careful to prove things from parables, and that's true, but it's a fact, isn't it, that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, a fascinating parable in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus die, and we get a description of them in this intermediate state. And what description is that? The rich man in Hades is conscious, he's conscious, but conscious of his agony. And across that unbridgeable chasm, he sees Lazarus in the arms of Abraham. It's striking. The rich man dies. That's what happens to people outside of Christ. But it doesn't say Lazarus dies. It says the angels came and they carried him to the arms of Abraham. That's the biblical picture. Death poses no real threat in terms of our relationship to Christ. The communion with Christ is not broken. He is brought into the arms of Abraham. I don't understand it, but Scripture teaches it, and this is faith, saying amen to everything Scripture teaches. And we may not let anyone rob us of any of comfort that we receive from the Word of God. We may stand comforted in the funeral home and at the grave. This is the Word of God, as amazing as it is. When you believe this and really believe this, you know what? 
You can even laugh and tell stories at the graves of your dear ones. When they've died in Christ, and when you know they've died in Christ and are gathered to Christ, you can have joy that's unspeakable in terms of its death. And that's not all. We see not only the continuation of our lives at our death, we also see the glorification of our lives in the resurrection. You see, the point is that (coughs) though Scripture promises the believer an unbroken and even intensified communion with the Lord during the intermediate state, the state remains a provisional and incomplete one. It is intermediate, we call it, the intermediate state between our death and the resurrection that comes with the return of Jesus Christ. It's an intermediate period of time. And uh, consequently, the hope of every Christian beyond the grave is focused ultimately upon his participation in the harvest which remains to be reaped now that Christ, the first fruits, has been raised from the dead. The, 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 the intermediate state is the, what we call the penultimate state. It's the second last state. What you really want is the last state which goes on forever, and that is to be forever in the presence of God. And that's coming, says the catechism and says our scriptures. Think of it, the scriptural account of the creation of man teaches that he was created from the beginning a living soul, a living being, a wondrous unity of soul and body fashioned for fellowship and communion with God. And afterwards, there's not a hint anywhere in scripture that man's bodily existence is a hindrance to fellowship with God. It's not our bodily existence in this creation that's the problem. There's no suggestion of a dualism or dichotomy of body and soul, even of heaven and earth. Man was created for life, covenant life with God, as a creature formed the dust of the earth. His body was not in the beginning a prison house of the soul, as the Greeks taught. It was the, his body was the indispensable medium of man's creaturely life, by the means whereby he got to enjoy everything there is in creation. It was necessary for the fulfillment of the mandate given at the creation. But the point is, this kind of life is coming back. So it will be in the world without end. The physicalness, so to speak, comes back again. We will not just be some spiritual creatures wearing our halos and floating on clouds, as some popular modern mythology might tell us. Our final and eternal existence will not only be in a new heaven, this new heaven is united with a new earth upon which we will stand and we will walk and we will run and we will live and serve God. We need the resurrection of the body because we need to be physical again in a physical world. We should not make heaven and going to heaven everything. It's but a step on the eternal journey. It's our penultimate state with the ultimate being, the new heaven and the new earth, where God dwells and the people of God dwell with Him. The biblical view of the believer's future promises the redemption of the whole person, body and soul, in fellowship with Christ. Redemption in Christ, therefore, includes the resurrection of the body. And it will, in fact, be so much better than ever before. Think of it. In the Scriptures, there are several metaphors used to describe the difference between our present bodies, burdened by and weighted down by sin, and our anticipated resurrection bodies. 
For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, we didn't read all these passages, but in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul employs two metaphors to describe the resurrection of the body. On the one hand, he employs the metaphor of a dwelling place to compare the weakness and the fragility of our present bodies with the strength and indestructibleness of our resurrection bodies. And so when he speaks about our present bodies, he actually speaks about tents. We all know what tents are like. Wet, cold, they're okay for a while, but ultimately they provide inadequate shelter. I'm sure all those visitors here and Owen Sound this weekend thought twice about it if they had to live for the weekend in a tent. But it was different if they could live in a cottage or something more structured. We long for our homes after we've been in a tent. Well, says Paul, after speaking about our present bodies as tents, which quickly dissolve and pass away, our future dwellings are like those homes. The earthly tent we live in is being destroyed piece by piece. But we have a building from God, Paul says, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. In the next breath, he uses another metaphor. He uses the metaphor of clothing. He, he employs the metaphor of clothing to compare our present mortality and liability to death to our future immortality and immunity to death. And then employing or mixing both metaphors at once, he declares, while we live in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Similarly, in Philippians 3, we heard this morning, the Apostle Paul describes the believer as someone whose citizenship is in heaven and who eagerly waits for the Savior to come from there. For when the Savior is revealed, he, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. The language of the text promises us that one of the greatest acts of Christ's present reign at the Father's right hand will be this work of granting the believer a full share in the power of Christ's resurrection. We will have the kind of life our Lord Jesus Christ had on Easter morning. We'll be fit for a new heaven and a new earth, even as Jesus Christ is today already in the heavens, fit for the new heaven and the new earth. We have our flesh in heaven. Think of another passage, 1 Corinthians 15, the relationship between the believer's present perishable body and his future imperishable body is described under the figure of a seed which is sown in one form, but which after it dies gives birth to a new and significantly different form. The apostle writes, so it will be the body, so it will be with the resurrection of the, of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Do I understand how all this happens? No, I can't understand this. Especially when you think of people whose bodies have decayed in nothing but ashes or, or have been burnt or scattered at sea. I can't understand this. Who can understand this? But again, the fact that God is the one who says it, that's good enough. There's so much I don't understand. 
Can you understand, to come back to 1 Corinthians 15, how you get from one tiny seed, a tree as big as a Douglas fir? Can you understand, for that matter, how from the union of two people, the union of a sperm and an egg, you get a third person? Do you understand the first creation? God takes dust and He forms it and breathes upon it, and there is this living being. Who can understand this? It points to a God who is so, so much bigger than we are, so much greater. Surely the God who does the one can do the other. No, those passages do not answer all our curious questions about the nature of the resurrection body, yet they clearly teach that our present bodies will undergo a transformation, a transfiguration such that this mortal nature will put on immortality, this, incorrup this corruptible incorruption. There will be a measure of real continuity between our present and resurrection bodies so that we say, we still exist, that person still exists. But at the same time, there will be a real discontinuity, discontinuity between our present and resurrected bodies. The body will be changed, resurrected in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet. This is the joy of the gospel. In raising believers, God completes their redemption by the gift. Not of their old bodies somehow patched up, but of new bodies fit for new men, new women, new children. Through regeneration and sanctification, God has already renewed us inwardly. There's a day coming when that inward renewal will be matched with outward renewal, new bodies. The new body is linked with the old, yet different from it, just as plants are linked with, yet different from, the seeds from which they grew. The body I now have is often like a student's old jalopy, ready to fall apart. It needs care, often lets a person down. You don't get to go where you want to go. But my new body, it will behave like a terrific Rolls Royce. My service of God will never be spoiled by it. It's good to think of what this means today. The Corinthians thought it didn't matter what they did in the body. They all end up in the grave and, or on the ash heap, so it doesn't matter if I, if I take my body to a prostitute. It doesn't matter. It's only the body. If I throw my body into the ashes, into the fire, it doesn't matter. It's only my body. They made the soul everything. But Christian truth preaches the resurrection of the body. The Lord is for the body. The Lord Jesus is for the body, and the body is for the Lord. In other words, take care of your bodies. Take care of your health. Take care of your well-being, because in a real sense, you have to do with your body forever. We belong body and soul to the Lord. So glorify God, Paul says. Glorify God in your body. Those are earth-shattering words for, for Greeks who made the soul everything, glorify God in your body. It's good to think of what comfort this is too. Today, there are people who know of physical limitations. Some are bound, born with physical handicaps. Some spend a whole lifetime in a wheelchair. There are the crippled and the deformed and the hormonally unbalanced, you name it. There's the process of old age 
So often we want to do things, but our bodies don't let us anymore. How we can weep for joy then at the thought of the resurrection. None of this will be a problem. You can throw your wheelchairs away. You can get rid of the crutches. You don't need them. It will be a joy and a delight to serve God forever, and we'll be able to do that which is our joy and delight, for we will be made like unto the glorious body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, it's only fitting, therefore, that Lord's Day 22 should end thirdly with a thought about the blessedness of our lives into eternity. After this life, perfect blessedness. The old version used to speak about perfect bliss. It's the same thing, because what is perfect bliss? Perfect bliss is to be perfectly blessed by God. Notice it speaks again about life. Life everlasting. The believer's future is one in which that life in covenant communion with the triune God for which man was created will be realized in all the elect, the new humanity. And that life of communion with God will be life everlasting. Paradise lost will have become paradise regained, even paradise eternalized. Notice, too, that's not all future. It begins already here. I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Now already we have something believers do not and cannot understand. There's joy, deep joy, even in the midst of the sadness and the gravity and the pain of death and departure. You can stand at the grave. You can go through excruciating circumstances, and yet there's a joy that no one can steal. That's why Paul says, rejoice, rejoice in all things, everything. For nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No one can snatch this future out of our hands. Why is it so wondrous? Why is it perfect blessedness? It will be that, no doubt, partly because of the resurrection of the body, perfect blessedness, but it will be that, no doubt, also because we will live on a new earth. How often on this earth doesn't it happen we see things that take our breath away? I'll tell you, I have been on the top of Black Hole Mountain to ski, and you're looking down on the clouds. You're seeing the sun. Talk about glory. Talk about glory. So majestic. I have been on the top of Mount Masada, close to the Dead Sea. You're looking over Israel. You're looking over the Dead Sea. I understand why Herod made his summer palace on the top of Masada, even though it cost him a fortune. The view is so glorious. But we will live on the new heaven and the new earth. I'm confident I haven't seen the best yet. Who can stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and not be impressed? What a God we have. They say that many a scientist stands in awe because of the marvelous intricacies he sees through the microscope, but similarly through the telescope. Can you imagine what it will be like to live on a new earth when whatever defects and problems we now have will be no more? Perfect blessedness. But while all of that will be wonderful, no doubt, there's something else that will be the cause of true wonder. 
It's not the mountains or the trees. It's not even the new bodies or the new things or that which we will see. It will not be the gifts. It will be the giver himself. That will be our supreme delight. That was the supreme delight that we removed in paradise. Just live with me, Adam. Just live with me. God living with man. But see, it comes again. Why is it in Revelation 21 there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain? The old order passed away because God in some supreme manner will be there and will behold him. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. And therefore it will be his hand that takes that kerchief. It's quite a picture, a picture of our Lord God standing there with a great big kerchief and he's wiping away all the tears of his people. They come in pain, they come in sadness, they come in sorrow, but he wipes away every tear. Even more specifically, the real joy, the real awareness that this is perfect blessedness will arise from the fact you will dwell forever with our Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of the words of the Lord Jesus, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. Or think of his high priestly prayer, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me. And that's not only his passion. It should be yours and mine. What is life everlasting? What is the essence of the new heaven and the new earth? It is this, being with our Lord Jesus Christ. What will we do in this life everlasting? Lounge around, sing forever. No, no, this will be our life. We will worship. We will work. We will think we will communicate, we will enjoy activity, beauty, people, and God. But we'll do all of that better than we ever did it before. We will see and love Jesus, our Savior, our Master, our friend, better than we ever, ever did before. And all God's people said, <laughs>